love having our kids with us. I also want to say one of my favorite uh, chapters of the Bible recently has been Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 1 through 17 is a passage of scripture I pray for us as a church uh, a few times a week. Part of the thing that I pray for us is that we would really admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs the way that Colossians 3.16 says we are to do. And this morning, man, I just from the folks on, up here to you all in the congregation, uh, the singing was just loud and it was rich and it was really encouraging. And uh, it's a great way to lead into the preaching of the word here as we open our Bibles. So keep singing, church. It, it is a wonderful thing to hear you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 10 again this morning, back to Acts 10 after uh, a brief pause last week. As you turn there, I will ask this question to you. It's a very broad question. What do you want? What do you want? I know what Chiefs and Lions and Niners and Ravens fans want today. Every poll that people take seems to say, uh, when it comes to Americans and what we want, the number one thing that we always say is happiness. It's like all these polls that you look at, it's happiness, it's happiness. If you talk to my kids about what they want, they might tell you, you know, candy and screen time would be at the top of the list of their desires. But what do you want? If you are a Christian, and particularly if you're a member of our church, I hope that you want what we see in the Bible this morning, in this passage. It is a desirable scene at the end of Acts chapter 10. Peter has come to the home of a Gentile, a non-Jewish man, after God called him to do so. If you remember, Peter was praying around lunchtime in Joppa on the roof of Simon the Tanner, and he had a vision that showed him that all food was declared clean in the new covenant, and that now it would be no problem for him to enter into a Gentile man's home and to share the gospel with his family, to even sit at his table and eat with him because the food that he would eat at that table is clean. And Peter was told to make no distinction, to go to Caesarea without hesitation. And upon arrival, he met this man, Cornelius, who had also had a vision. Cornelius was a God-fearing Gentile who was about as Jewish as you could get without being circumcised and actually being uh, a fully proselytized convert to Judaism. And he was told by an angel of God in a vision about this man named Peter that he was to send for. And the last time that we were in Acts together, Peter and Cornelius, they had met. Peter had gone with the messengers who had come to get him to Cornelius' home. They had coordinated the visions they received from the Lord. And Cornelius said this to Peter. He said, so I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So the door is wide open for Peter to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he walks through it. And God moves in an amazing way. He moves in such a way that we should read this and go, we want this in our church. We want this to happen in the ministry of our lives. So I'm going to read this text for us, and we have three teaching points this morning and a question. The three points will be, faith comes through the hearing of the Word of God, salvation is wrought and confirmed by the Spirit of God, transformation is expressed through the ordinance of God, and then our big application question is, do we believe God still does this, and do we want that? So let's pray together, and then we will read Acts 10, 34 through 48. Father God, thank you so much for the singing this morning. Thank you for the rich theology in the songs. Thank you, God, for the truth that we have proclaimed through the songs. Thank you, God, that we have been able to come before you confessing our sin, that you are just and you are faithful to forgive us on the basis of Jesus Christ. And now, God, as we are opening up your word, I ask that 
your word would be remembered, that the messenger of your word would be forgotten, that you would be at the forefront this morning. This is all about you. It's not about us. It's about your work in us and you glorifying yourself through us. It's about the way you save. And I pray, God, that your spirit would be doing this, maybe even in this room this morning, making a heart alive, calling people out of the world to yourself by grace into your church. So, Lord, we turn our palms up to you and we ask that you would fill them with the truth of your word. We need it. We cannot live on bread alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead." To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him and receives uh, who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, meaning the Jewish believers, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Peter opens his witness with a reiteration of what God has taught him through that entire experience in Joppa with the vision and the experience of actually coming to Cornelius' house. He has learned through all of this that truly the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for Jewish people, it is also for Gentile people, that God is not a God of partiality, that he is after the worship of people of all nations of anyone who would fear him and walk in paths of righteousness, that he accepts the worship of peoples from all over the world. And God has always been this way. As King Jehoshaphat was speaking to the judges that he was appointing in Second Chronicles 19, verse 7, he says, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. And even though God primarily revealed himself to Israel under the Old Covenant, there were still times in which you see his grace being set upon Gentiles. You think of Naaman, the Syrian, who was healed of his leprosy and worshipped the Lord. You think of the Ninevites that Jonah preached to, who repented of their sin. Or you can just look in Matthew chapter 1 at the genealogy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and you find Gentiles listed in the genealogy. You find Tamar, the Canaanite woman who bore two sons to Judah. You find Rahab the prostitute who assisted the Israelite spies in Jericho. And you find Ruth the Moabite who is actually King David's great-grandmother. Prophets like Isaiah and Zechariah foretold the praise of Gentile nations before the throne of God. And so the grace of God being given to Gentiles, it's not a novel plan that the Lord came up with at the line of scrimmage, 
calling an audible before the birth of his son. Instead, it was foreshadowed, it was sprinkled throughout the Old Covenant, and it came to full fruition in His Son, Jesus Christ, who is, as Peter calls Him in verse 36, the Lord of all. Now, what we're seeing in verses 36 through 43 is truly the full counsel of the Gospel. Peter is preaching the message that God's people have been preaching for 2,000 years. It is the message that God commissioned us to proclaim to the world. Peter says in verse 42 that it is the message he has commanded the apostles in the church to preach. And we know that this command can be found in places like Matthew 28, where Jesus says to his disciples just before his ascension, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so on the authority of Christ, we are to go, we are to make disciples, we are to see them baptized in the name of the glorious triune God, we are to teach them everything that Jesus has taught us. And as we do this work, Christ is with us until he returns again. Acts starts with Jesus telling the apostles that they will do this work, that they will be witnesses to the end of the earth. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. The book of Acts will end with Paul in Rome, the heart of the Gentile world, proclaiming the gospel, Luke says, with all boldness and without hindrance. The proclamation of this gospel that we're going to see Peter preaching here to the glory of God is what the church does. This is what she is about. So Peter calls this full counsel of the gospel in verse 36, the word that was sent to Israel. And he begins to unpack it for Cornelius and all who are gathered in the house. He tells them how God sent preached good news through his son, Jesus Christ, in verse 36. Isaiah 52, 7 says that the feet which arrive upon a mountain with good news are beautiful feet. And there have never been feet more beautiful than the Son of God's. He didn't just bring the good news, he is the good news. He did not just bring the word, he is the word. And Peter says that the events that transpired regarding Jesus are known to Cornelius and known to his family, known to his household, which shows just how much of a stir the life of Jesus, the bringer of good news, caused. Caesarea was mainly a Gentile town. 62 miles from the home base of Jesus' ministry, and yet it is just assumed that they have knowledge about what occurred with Jesus. This shows how really the whole region was, was stirred up by what the Lord Jesus did in his ministry. And as Peter explains the sending of the Son of God, he actually starts not with Jesus, but with the baptism of John. John had a baptism ministry where he preached repentance. Before John, baptism was really used for Gentiles. When a Gentile would fully convert to Judaism, when they would be fully proselytized, really one of the last things they would do is they would be baptized by immersion, and then they would be converted into the Jewish faith. What was so scandalous about John to the religious elite of his time is that he came along saying, oh no, no, there are people in Israel who are circumcised, who are Jewish, and they have uncircumcised hearts, and they do not know the Lord, even though they have the prophets, even though they have the temple, even though they have the law, they do not know the Lord, and they need to repent of their sin, and they need to put their trust in God, and they need to demonstrate that in baptism. And boy, did the Pharisees hate to hear that. Like, what, what are you saying that Jewish people need to be baptized the way Gentiles are? So this is one of the reasons that John's ministry was, was so scandalous to the religious elite. 
He was the forerunner of Jesus' ministry. Peter says God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power in verse 38, likely referring to the baptism of Christ at the hands of John. Matthew 3.16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And then in the power of the Spirit, Jesus goes about doing good. Goes about healing the demon-possessed, Peter says in verse 38. This was one of the signs that the kingdom of God was at hand and that the king had come to the earth in the flesh. There was a demonic uprising during the time of Christ, unlike anything that has ever been seen on the earth before or since. It's not to say that the demonic is not still active today. We know from passages like Ephesians 6 that Christians wage a war with principalities of this present darkness. But during the time of Christ on earth, the devil's activity was heightened in reaction to the fact that his greatest enemy had come to redeem the souls of men. The serpent crusher came to earth and the serpent rose up with venom to try and stop him, but he couldn't. Because Peter says, God was with him. Just as Jesus is God and God was with him at creation in John 1.1, Jesus is God and God was with him in his incarnation. Peter says that he and the other apostles saw all of this. They were eyewitnesses to all that Jesus did in Judea and in Jerusalem. In fact, this is part of the qualification for somebody being an apostle, a foundation-laying apostle of the church. They had to be an eyewitness to the work of Christ on the earth, including the most important work that Jesus accomplished in Jerusalem, his death and his resurrection. Peter's explanation of the death and resurrection of Christ is brief. He may have said more than Luke records, but Luke sums it all up in 14 Greek words. They, meaning the Jews, put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day. And this is evidenced by a host of people who God chose to reveal the resurrected Christ to. Not everyone in Judea saw the resurrected Christ with their own eyes, but many did. The apostles did. Mary Magdalene did, along with the three women from Matthew 28, verse 9. Paul did in his Damascus Road vision, though it happened very different than others. He saw him after his ascension. And Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were 500 who saw him at one time. And it's important that Paul says that. No lawyer in their right mind would call 500 witnesses to the stand to corroborate a story unless they were absolutely sure those people would all have the same testimony. And Paul mentions them. And you can go find these people. You can talk to them because he's sure that these 500 witnesses will have a testimony that lines up with one another. Peter says this resurrected Christ is the judge of the living and the dead in verse 42 and in verse 43 that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness from their sins through his name. And he points to the prophets as the witnesses to all of this showing this is not his opinion. Peter's not speaking from his feelings and his sentiments. He is speaking from the scriptures. He's saying this was foretold. This is rooted in the truth of God's word. The major Old Testament prophets proclaimed a definitive forgiveness of sin in the last days. Isaiah 33, verse 24. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. And then in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So it took us a little bit of time to get there, but here's our first teaching point today. Number one, faith comes through hearing the word of God. We're going to see faith 
come from Cornelius and his household. And that faith comes because they've heard the word of God. This is what Paul teaches us in Romans 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. For they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel is good news. That's what that word means. And the good news is really a summary of the saving message of God in his word. What Peter has given to Cornelius and his household is the message of the Bible. He's given him news of his sin. He has given him news of a judge and how his sin will be judged. He's given him the good news of a savior. He has given him news of repentance and forgiveness. And when people, hearing this full counsel of the gospel, agree with God about the evil of their sin, and they trust Christ to save them from it, they will be forgiven. When the Word of God exposes their hearts for being sinners who have broken God's laws, who stand in danger of eternal punishment, and then the Word of God offers them the grace of Christ, and someone believes, it is credited to them as righteousness. God looks upon that believer as if they have never sinned, as if they possess the very righteousness of Christ, because they do, by faith. They are justified. They are declared not guilty because the Son of God was made guilty for them. He washes them and He remembers their sin no more. And this is what the whole of Christianity hangs on. If the things that Peter says here are not true, we have nothing. We have nothing. We are wasting our time this morning. We have no faith. J. Gresham Machen says, well, he doesn't say, he said, he is with the Lord now. For Christianity depends not upon a complex of ideas, but upon the narration of an event. Without that event, the world in the Christian view is altogether dark and humanity is lost under the guilt of sin. But what the prophets And the eyewitnesses and Peter are telling Cornelius is that these things are true. That Christ has died and there is forgiveness for those who believe in Him. The newborn faith we're about to see spring from these people in Cornelius' home. It's not rooted in a set of principles. It's not rooted in just a religious way of life. It is rooted in the good news of the event of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is not preaching salvation as this thing discovered through enlightenment. He's preaching salvation as a thing that happened and must be trusted in. Faith comes through hearing the Word of God, the full counsel of God's good news of salvation in His one and only begotten Son. Jesus Christ who lived, who died, who rose again, and now lives on high. Now having heard Peter's testimony, let's see what happens with Cornelius. Luke says, while Peter is still speaking, that the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the Word. This is the wording used to explain how the first Gentiles are saved. No altar call, no repeat after me prayer, no walking an aisle. That's because none of those things save you. God saves you with His grace by His power. Luke is not so concerned with the ordo salutis here, the order of salvation. He's simply wanting us to know the Spirit of God is at work, which is confirmed by tongues that the Gentiles start speaking in in verse 46. So, teaching point number two this morning. Salvation is wrought and confirmed by the Spirit of God. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. 
Salvation is wrought and confirmed by the Spirit of God. When I say the ordo salutis, or the order of salvation, I'm talking about the sequence of salvation. Our being born again is just one part of our salvation. God's saving purposes on behalf of His people stretch all the way back into eternity past and all the way forward into eternity future. The Bible speaks clearly of God's foreknowledge and predestination of His people in eternity past, God's effectual calling of His people, the regeneration of the heart by the work of the Spirit in His people, there is faith and justification as we repent and we believe. But it doesn't stop there. Those whom God chooses and God redeems, God sanctifies. He conforms into the image of His beloved Son throughout this life. And then, there is glorification. Which will be consummated fully when He returns and we receive our resurrection bodies and we dwell on the new earth for age upon age upon age into eternity future. Here in Cornelius' living room, this group of Gentiles certainly experience the regeneration of their hearts. They experience a work of the Holy Spirit. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley define regeneration as supernatural rebirth into spiritual life by which God begins salvation. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there is no more profound change in the universe than when the Holy Spirit of God regenerates the heart of a sinner. Regeneration was promised in the Old Testament. I read Ezekiel 36, verse 25, about how God cleanses us from all our uncleannesses. In the very next verse, Ezekiel prophesies with the Lord speaking through him, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We would never walk in the statutes of the Lord. We would never obey his rules. We would never even respond to him in faith. If the spirit of God does not first make the heart alive. Regenerate the heart. Bring life to the dead heart of the sinner. Paul writes to Titus about this regeneration in the New Testament. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the watching of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about in their famous John 3 conversation. And Jesus says to him, truly, truly, just like him saying to Nicodemus, listen up. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. You need a new birth. And these words about the water and the Spirit from Jesus is a direct reference to the prophecy of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, 25-27. God the Father is the author of our salvation and His sovereignty. God the Son redeems those whom the Father has chosen. And it is God the Spirit who regenerates and makes the people of God alive. But the work of the Spirit in salvation doesn't stop there. He doesn't regenerate our hearts and then retreat from us, leaving the rest of the work to the Father and the Son. Far from it. As we repent of our sin and we trust in Christ, our salvation is sealed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So it does not just make us alive, but He takes up residence in us. And Jesus taught this to His disciples. He said, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Listen to A.W. Tozer speak to how distinct and how central this is to Christianity. Deity indwelling men, Tozer says, 
That, I say, is Christianity. And no man has experienced rightly the power of Christian belief until he has known this for himself as a living reality. I believe we're seeing both of these things happen to a Cornelius' household in this passage. Their hearts are being regenerated, they're believing, and the Holy Spirit is taking up residence in them. Luke, unconcerned with listing out all the theological realities, simply says, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. My mother describes her own salvation in much the same terms. She didn't even get through the sermon on the Easter Sunday where she came to church really for the first time since she was a teenage girl. She didn't even get through the sermon. She had to get up and leave in the middle of it because the Holy Spirit fell on her. Beckett Cook describes his testimony this way. He was a former set designer in Hollywood, a mover and shaker in the fashion world as well, doing set designs for photo shoots and commercials. He walked into a Los Angeles church as a practicing homosexual and atheist on September 20th, 2009. Cook says he had lived a gay lifestyle since he was a teenager in Dallas in the 1980s. As his professional life advanced, he found himself traveling all over the world, regularly spending time in Drew Barrymore's pool, going to Paul McCartney's after parties, and even having, in his words, one magical night at Prince's home. And yet he secretly felt that this externally to the world looked like a glorious life. He felt that it was empty. And one day he met some Christians reading their Bibles in a Hollywood coffee shop and they invited him to church. And here's his words. He said, I found myself in an evangelical church in Hollywood the following Sunday. Every word from the pastor's mouth rang true. It turned everything I had understood about religion on its head. It was truly good news. The Holy Spirit overwhelmed me. God revealed himself to me. I began bawling uncontrollably. The Holy Spirit made it clear as day. I knew being gay was no longer who I was. It was a part of my past, and I did not care. I had just met the king of the universe. This is what regeneration and then justification and then indwelling can look like in conversion. The believers with Peter are amazed. They're amazed. Because Cornelius and his company start speaking in tongues, which are known languages, and they're extolling God. And it is obvious they have received the same spirit that Peter and the apostles have that they received at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In many ways, this is a sort of Gentile Pentecost. We don't know what languages Cornelius and his friends and family start speaking in. I would think that Hebrew or Aramaic were among them because Luke and his company, they're able to recognize, hey, they're extolling God. So they understood them on some level. But truly, this is Gentile Pentecost. We've mostly just seen Jews and Samaritans saved until now in the story of Acts. But the gospel is penetrating the end of the earth as it arrives at Cornelius' doorstep, just as Jesus said it would. And the same spirit that took up residence in the apostles and the earliest church in Jerusalem is taking up residence in a repentant Roman centurion in a city named after Caesar. And this is key. The fact that they speak in these tongues. Because when Peter is being accused by the believers in Jerusalem is doing something wrong by even going to Cornelius' house, by eating with him, by accepting an uncircumcised man, Peter will point to the gift of tongues as a sign that God is at work, that the Spirit is at work. Acts 11, verse 15, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. What happened to us at Pentecost is happening to these people. It's undeniable. Verses 17 and 18. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You really see the purpose 
of the sign gifts of tongues here. It existed in the early church as a sign of salvation that as the Gentiles came to the church, clearly they had received the same spirit that the Jewish believers had received, and so they should be accepted as brothers and sisters. It was also a sign not just of salvation, but a sign of judgment. It was a sign of the fact that salvation was moving to Gentile nations, and that was judgment upon Israel. To use the language of Jesus' parable in the tenants of the vineyard, you remember that the master of the vineyard would send servants to the tenants of the vineyard and they would reject the servants just as the Old Testament people of Israel rejected the prophets who came to get fruit. And then he sends his son to the vineyard and they kill his son just as people in Jerusalem killed the Son of God. And as a result, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And so the tongues spoken by Gentiles were not just the sound of salvation for the nations, but it was also a sound of judgment for unbelieving Israel. It was the sound of God's grace being available to everyone, but it was also a sound of judgment to those who rejected it. Luke's main focus here, though, is that it is the sound of salvation for the Gentiles. Joel's prophecy about Tongues in the last days is coming to pass, and the Gentiles are experiencing it. Faith comes through the hearing of the Word of God. Salvation is wrought and confirmed by the Spirit of God. After it was clear that salvation had come to Cornelius' house, Peter makes a declaration in the form of a question. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? He's carrying out the commission given to him by Jesus in Matthew 28. He is going to baptize Cornelius and his household in the name of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The baptism is not going to save them. It's already happened. As evidenced by them extolling God in these tongues. But it will be a first step of obedience for these newborn believers. It will be a physical, outward expression of the spiritual transformation that has taken place. So teaching point number three this morning, transformation is expressed through the ordinance of God. Transformation is expressed through the ordinance of God. Ezekiel's new covenant prophecy and promise have come true. God has graciously cleansed Cornelius and his company from all their uncleannesses. He has given them a new heart. They have the Spirit in them, and now they will be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word that translates to baptizing in verse 47 and baptized in verse 48 is baptizo. It literally means to immerse. If you ever wonder why as Baptists we're so adamant about baptizing by immersion, this is really what it comes down to. It's the way that the New Testament writers talk about it. The Greek word baptisma, which is in Romans 6, it means the same thing. The immersion is a symbol of what has happened to the believer. They were dead in sin. They were locked in a grave of their own depraved nature, alienated from God, strangers to God. But then God's Spirit gave them new birth and they were freed from the prison of sin. The door of the prison flung open. And so the old man of sin and depravity has died with Christ and the new man has been raised with him. Romans 6.8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Like the Lord's Supper, baptism is a picture given to us. The difference is, is that baptism is the symbol that shows our entrance into God's church. The Lord's Supper is the symbol that we use to show how we remain in God's church. That being said, we have to make sure that as we read Acts, we understand Luke's writing has the purpose of describing what is happening in the early church. Not necessarily prescribing what the church should do at all times. To understand what is descriptive, 
as opposed to what is prescriptive in Acts, we really need the help of the rest of the New Testament, which gives us more clear instruction on how the church should function. Some people have read this and thought this means as soon as someone believes, they should always be baptized. Many churches are practicing what is called spontaneous baptism, where they open the waters up regularly and let people come in as an altar call and get baptized right away with little to no interface with the person. The truth is is that the rest of the New Testament is pretty quiet on how soon someone should be baptized after their conversion. And I actually think that silence should give us pause when it comes to practicing baptism the way that Peter does here. We have to keep in mind that Peter and the apostles in the early church have the advantage of the gift of tongues as clear evidence of Cornelius' salvation in the indwelling of the Spirit. It's what he says in Acts 15, verses 8 and 9. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. How did Peter know that? Because they spoke in the same tongues that Peter and the boys did in Acts 2. We don't have that today. Instead, we are looking for a different fruit of the Spirit. We're looking for a, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit that comes from a converted person's life. Is there love? Is there joy? Is there peace? Is there patience and kindness? Is there goodness and faithfulness? Are we seeing evidence of gentleness, evidence of self-control? Is there a love for the Word? Is there a love for the church? A longing for Jesus to return, a desire to share the gospel with people. A person doesn't need to be Charles Spurgeon in order to be baptized. That's not what I'm saying. But they do need to be saved. It is a sign for the redeemed. Therefore, we must have some level of patience to inspect the fruit of someone's life before we would rush them to the ordinance of baptism. Otherwise, we may give them a false assurance when there's not actually saving faith. And it also can be incredibly confusing for the church to see loads of people coming through the waters but not remaining at the Lord's table. Christian writings, even before the end of the first century, give instructions about baptism that call for the baptizer and the candidate for baptism to fast for some days before giving the ordinance. By the 4th century, believers were being catechized with doctrinal question and answer before entering the waters to ensure they weren't just doing it to improve their social status. Speaking of Charles Spurgeon, he made his own sons wait till they were 18 before he would even baptize them to be sure their faith was their own. Now, I'm not saying we need to do that. I love Brother Spurgeon, but I'm not saying we need to do that. But I am saying there should be a pause before we administer the ordinance. Because we want to do it rightly, to the best of our ability, using the discernment of the word. I say this as a guy who was baptized in April of 1999, but was not saved until July of 1999. And April comes before July, and that's a problem. My parents had come to Christ, my dad in October of 98, my mom, as I just mentioned, Easter, April 99. Very nice preacher came to the house. I do not mean to speak bad about this man. I love this man. This is the man who gave me my first reference book, Bible reference book ever. He was a very kind and loving pastor. But he came to my house and he talked to my parents and my dad explained in full his testimony how he'd come to Christ. My mom explained in full her testimony and he looked at me and said, Michael, what about you? Are you a Christian? I said, I think so. And he said, all right, well, we're going to set that baptism date. And that was it. That was, that was all the interface I really got. And I was baptized alongside my parents. And I have distinct memories of going to play a baseball game the afternoon that I was baptized, playing first base and bobbling a grounder and saying a cuss word and thinking, oh my goodness, I just got all my sins washed away this morning. And here I am dirtying myself up already. I couldn't make it a few hours 
clearly showing that I didn't have a proper understanding of conversion, I didn't have a proper understanding of baptism, though I had been in the church for eight months, going to youth group and going to Sunday school and sitting under preaching regularly. It had not clicked for me. I did not understand. And I thought that by going to those waters, I was earning my salvation in some way, that I was literally having sins washed away in this this magic H2O. So I became a Christian at a summer camp just a couple of months later, and I lived really as an unbaptized Christian teenager for a couple of years. But before I left for college, I went to my new pastor, because our church had changed pastors uh, during that time, David Slayton, who's now the pastor at Amelia Baptist Church. And I said, David, I said, I, I've not been baptized since I was a believer. And he said, well, we've got to fix that. And he stood me up in front of the church. He explained to them the situation. And he baptized me as a believer. And then it happens, okay? It's, it's not the end of the world. But I think it's something we could avoid more with a touch of patience in our discipleship. Bottom line is this. Faith comes through the hearing of the Word of God. Salvation is wrought and confirmed by the Spirit of God. And salvation is expressed through the ordinance of God. As we wrap this up today, my question is, do we believe... God still does this. I'm not talking about the tongues bit. I think in our study we've established how certain spiritual gifts served a particular purpose in the early church and are not active today, thus requiring us to inspect fruit in a different way before we would baptize. Instead, I'm speaking to God saving through the preaching of the Word. The Spirit of God falling on unbelieving hearts. The waters of baptism being stirred by the dead who have come to life in Christ. Do we believe this? Can I tell you a fear that I have? We are probably, of all my friends that pastor that I sit down and talk with regularly, the busiest church that I know of. Of all the men that I I, I pastor with, that I love, men like Wes Taylor from Temple Baptist, the guys you got to know at Theology Week, Kenny at at RCF, Hobson from Pocosin Baptist, Nathan from Fox Hill Road Baptist, the men in the Pillar Network, of all their churches, honestly, like I look at our calendar, I'm like, we are the busiest. Like We stay working. I love that. I do. But my fear is we could get so busy with serving, we lose track of sharing. We get so busy with church work, we would forget about the most important work of the church. So busy preparing and planning and pulling off programs that we would get lazy with our proclamation. We stay working, but to what end? What is all of this for? What is all this about? It's not just to do the stuff that's on the calendar. Our purpose as the workmanship of God is to take the gospel to the world. There's a cycle that Pastor Ben and I have been talking about that we long to see in our church. People commit to Christ. Take up their cross and follow Him, right? Commit and then to cultivate a real spiritual relationship with Him. And to also cultivate a real relationship in the church with others. And then to carry the gospel out to people in the world. And then to see those people commit to Christ and cultivate a relationship with Him and others. And then to carry the gospel into the world and those people to commit. And you see what I'm saying? To see people commit and cultivate and carry and it just keeps going and going as we fulfill the Great Commission. And I believe you want that. I believe that down to each one of our active covenant members, we want that. But you know what? Spouses want to romance each other. And dads want to spend time with their kids. And leaders want to have better long-term goals for organizations. The reality is we can get so bogged down with the urgent and with busyness, we don't do what we want to do or need to do. What I'm sure of is this, that the remedy for any lack of intentionality that may have come upon us when it comes to sharing our faith and discipling others, it has to 
it has to start at the same place that all wisdom starts, with the fear of the Lord. And so we have to fear God enough to believe that His Word saves. We have to have the same sort of trembling faith that took Peter to Caesarea. Peter believed, if I, if I get to these people, I preach the gospel to these people, God's going to do something. When you look at the unbelievers in your life, do you think, if I could just get with them with this Bible open, God's going to do something. God's word will change a life. We have to have the sort of trembling faith that believes, if I pray for God to change hearts with His Spirit, His Spirit will change hearts because that's what His Spirit does. The sort of trembling, praying faith that will get on its knees and plead for souls to be saved and the baptismal waters to be splashing. So the band's going to come back right now to lead us in our final song. And as they do, church, let's make sure that we're not just busy, we're bold. We're not just programming, we're proclaiming. And let's not just sit around with crossed fingers wishing that Seaford would be saved and baptized. Let's be wanting for it at the throne of grace. Prayer after prayer. God still saves. Do we expect Him to? Father God, I thank You that salvation is from the Lord. And You have sent the Lord Jesus Christ and that He has accomplished salvation on the cross. He has accomplished it in resurrection. He has accomplished it and ascending to the right hand of the Father where He lives and pleads for us as we have already sang about this morning. Lord, help us to proclaim Him. We want to see people commit to You to find the joy that they were made to have in You. We want to see people cultivate a relationship with You and cultivate a relationship with one another in the church. We want to see people carry the gospel back to the world. Lord, may this cycle be turning and turning and turning in our church body. Make it the thing we live for. Glorify you through the proclamation of your word. Save, Lord. Save, save, save through the ministry of our church. It's for you. It's not for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.